Welcome to New Life Church's weekly message. New Life Church's mission is to lead people into a transforming relationship with Jesus through the gospel. This is message number 12 of the series from the book of James. Speaker, Pastor Steve Benninger, entitled Real Faith Patiently Perseveres from James 5, 7 through 12. You can find the sermon outline for this message at enewlife.com. Well, I don't know where you were on Friday when you heard about what was unfolding in Paris, but I know I felt that same pit in my stomach that I felt 14 years ago on 9-11. And uh, what, a, what a horrific evil. And, um, you know, there's, a, there's a, a literary form in the scriptures called a lament. And many of the Psalms are actually laments. They are heart cries with raw emotion as God's people look at what's going on in the world. In fact, there's a book in the Old Testament, Lamentations. It's just a series of laments. And um, I came across a lament yesterday on um, the Gospel Coalition website written by a pastor named Scotty Smith, and I wanted us to today take a few moments here and um, lament together, can we? Psalm 37, verse 7 says this, Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for Him. Fret not yourself over the one who prospers in His way, over the man who carries out evil devices. Refrain from anger and forsake wrath. Fret not yourself, it tends only to evil. For the evildoers shall be cut off. Those who wait for the Lord shall inherit the land. In just a little while, the wicked will be no more. Though you look carefully at his place, he will not be there. The meek shall inherit the land and delight themselves in abundant peace. Dear Heavenly Father, Another day of terror-making darkness, evil-doing madness, and life-taking sadness. How long, O Lord? How long, O Lord, before you send Jesus back to eradicate all evil? How long before the wicked will be no more? How much longer is just a little while? It's hard not to fret. It's hard not to feel fearful and angry when... Women and children, the young and the old, are mercilessly slaughtered in the city of Paris. And restaurants and concert halls and sports arenas become the venue for the perversion of religion and the murder of your image bearers. Father, we offer our prayer not in self-righteous judgment, but as your weary children, longing for the day when the knowledge of your glory will fill the earth as the waters cover the sea when perfect peace will replace every expression of evil. Until that day, free us from all bitterness, free us from a lust for revenge, for vengeance belongs to you, not to us. Make us warriors of peace and agents of hope. Our labors in the Lord are never in vain. The gospel of the kingdom will prevail. Evil will be eradicated. The devil is filled with fury, for he knows that his time is short. Oh, Lord, make it much shorter, much shorter. Grant us wisdom to know what loving mercy, doing justice, and walking humbly with you looks like in Paris, in our country, and in our own communities. Replace our frets and our fears with faith and trust. 
and replace our rage and our wrath with patience and courage. And so we pray in Jesus' triumphant and grace-filled name. Amen. Amen. You can have a seat. Well, I, I want to prepare you that the, the tone of the sermon today is, is kind of heavy. And I want to start with an account of one of the early Christian martyrs, a lady named Perpetua, found on ChristianHistory.net. Dateline is Carthage, North Africa, 203 AD, 203 AD. Perpetua was a Christian woman of some standing who at the turn of the third century lived with her husband, her son, and her servant Felicitas in the city of Carthage. This time, North Africa was the center of a vibrant Christian community. It's no surprise then that when Emperor Septimius Severus determined to cripple Christianity because he believed it undermined Roman patriotism, he focused his attention on North Africa. And among the first to be arrested were five new Christians who were taking classes to prepare for baptism. And one of them was this woman, Perpetua. Her father came to her immediately when she was in prison. He was a pagan, and he saw an easy way for his daughter to save herself. He entreated her simply to just deny that she was a Christian. She replied, Father, do you see this vase here? Could it be called by any other name than what it is? No, he replied. Well, neither can I be called anything other than what I am, a Christian. In the next days, Perpetua was moved to a better part of the prison and allowed to breastfeed her infant child. With her hearing approaching, her father visited her again, this time pleading even more passionately, My daughter, have pity on my gray head. Have pity on me, your father, if I deserve to be called your father. If I have favored you above your brothers, if I have raised you to reach this prime of your life. He threw himself down before her and kissed her hands. Do not abandon me to the reproach of men. Think of your brothers. Think of your mother. Think of your aunt. Think of your infant child who will not be able to live once you are gone. Give up your pride. Perpetua was touched, but she remained unshaken. She tried to comfort her father. It will all happen in the prisoner's dock as God wills, she said. For you may be sure that we are not left to ourselves, but are all in his power. Her father heard this and walked out of the prison dejected. The day of her hearing finally arrived, and Perpetua and her friends were marched before the governor, Hilarianus. Perpetua's friends were questioned first, each in turn admitted to being a Christian, and each in turn refused to make a sacrifice as an act of worship to the emperor. Then the governor turned to question Perpetua. Right at that moment, her father, carrying her little son in his arms, burst into the room, he grabbed his daughter and pleaded, Perform the sacrifice, please. Have pity on your baby. Hilarionis, probably wishing to avoid the unpleasantness of executing a mother who is still nursing her child, added this, Yes, have pity on your father's gray head. Have pity on your son. Offer the sacrifice for the welfare of the emperor. But Perpetua replied simply, I will not. Are you a Christian then? asked the governor. Yes, I am, she replied. Her father interrupted once more, begging her to sacrifice, but Hilarionis had heard enough. He ordered soldiers to beat him into silence, and he then condemned Perpetua and her friends to die in the arena. Perpetua, her friends, and her servant Felicitas, who had subsequently been arrested, were dressed in belted tunics, 
When they were ushered into the stadium, wild beasts and gladiators roamed the arena floor, and in the stands, the crowds, the bloodthirsty crowds roared to see their blood. They didn't have to wait long. Immediately, a wild heifer charged the group. Perpetua was tossed into the air and then onto her back. She sat up, adjusted her tunic, and walked over to help Felicitas. Then a leopard was let loose, and it wasn't long before the tunics of the Christians were stained with blood. But this was too deliberate for the impatient crowd. They began calling for the death of the Christians. So Perpetua, Felicitas, and friends were lined up, and one by one they were slain by the sword. Dateline, Aleppo, Syria, 2015 A.D. An account uh, given to us by the Christian Aid Mission published in the Gospel Herald. Islamic State militants have brutally murdered 12 Christians, including the 12-year-old son of a Syrian ministry leader who had planted nine churches there, murdering them for refusing to renounce Jesus Christ and embrace Islam. These horrific executions took place on August 28th in an unnamed village outside Aleppo, Syria, In front of the team leader and relatives in the crowd, the Islamic extremists cut off the fingertips of the boy and severely beat him, telling his father they would stop the torture only if he, the father, returned to Islam. When the team leader refused, the ISIS militants also tortured and beat him and the two other ministry workers, and then the three men and the boy met their deaths in crucifixion. They were killed for refusing to return to Islam after embracing Christianity, as were the other eight aid workers, including two women. The eight were reportedly brought to a separate side in the village and also asked if they would return to Islam, but after they refused the offer, the women, ages 29 and 33, were raped before the crowd that had been summoned to watch, and then all eight were beheaded. Citing relatives and villagers who saw the horrific crime, the ministry leader of Christian Aid Mission said the women knelt down and prayed before the ISIS militants. Villagers said some were praying in the name of Jesus. Others said some were praying the Lord's Prayer. Others said some of them lifted their heads to commend their spirits to Christ. One of the women, it was reported, looked up and seemed to be almost smiling as she said the name, Jesus. The bodies of those killed were then hung on crosses for display, reflecting the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. We all need to realize that that being a Christian, that bearing the name of Jesus Christ, and that following our Lord and Savior Jesus in this world has historically meant having a hard life, having a very difficult life with persecution and oppression being more the rule than the exception. Many scholars agree that these last 400 or so years here in the West are really an anomaly of sorts, a historical anomaly, a strange parenthesis in an otherwise fairly consistent story of Christian persecution down through the ages. Christians here have been able to live their lives in relative peace compared to other eras and other places in the world. And while we should all be very grateful for that, and I certainly am, we should also realize that that might not always be the case. There are already signs that the cultural landscape is changing. Christians here in the West may end up joining their brothers and sisters in other countries, paying a price to follow Jesus. 
We shouldn't be surprised. Jesus never promised his followers an easy life, a carefree life on this earth. In fact, he promised, he said this, in this world you will have tribulation. Then he said, but I take heart, I have overcome the world. I know the prosperity preachers on TV and in churches around our city can be very persuasive, but I hope you can see through the phony brand of Christianity that they are offering that bears very little resemblance to the kind of life that Jesus himself lived and that his apostles spoke about. These guys twist the Bible. They mangle the scriptures to try to make it sound like God always wants all of his kids to be healthy and wealthy and have an easy and convenient life and live in abundance like they do. I got to thinking, you know, there are certain Bible passages that you will never hear those guys preach on, like the one we're in today in the book of James. They did, if they rightly divided the word of truth, it would shut down their ministry. The abundant life that Jesus promised his followers had nothing to do with living the American dream. As many have pointed out, rather, it's a life lived in the unassailable joy of God that you can experience independent of your circumstances in your situation. I've been to several poverty-stricken places in this world. I've been to some remote villages in upper India, northern India, in Nagpur. I've been to Mukono, Uganda, seen the poverty there. I've been to Central America. I've been to Dominica. In the 90s, for 10 straight years, every May, I visited Navajo Reservation in New Mexico. Poor, poverty-stricken places. And I have to tell you that it was in those places that I met the most joy-filled people that I've ever met in my life. And they have literally nothing materially compared to what we have. Some of your brothers and sisters in Christ live in absolute squalor. Tiny little huts, Dirty shanties with no indoor plumbing, no electricity, no creature comforts to speak of, but their faces radiate with the joy of Christ. When I worshiped with them, as I did many times, I would also tell you that the intensity of their worship of the Lord is on a different level than ours. They're not mad at God for letting them down. They're not disappointed with God for not blessing them with abundance. They love God with all of their hearts and their worship is passionate and fervent and emotional. To me, they seem strangely oblivious to the relative bleakness of their lives. Truth is, when I was with them, I felt smitten. I felt they possessed something that I didn't. Contentment. Contentment. And being around them made me long to have what they have. Passages in James, in our study that we're looking at today, was written to first century Christians who were having a hard time of things. Life was very difficult for them. They were victims of oppression by rich people, their employers, those they worked for. They were being mistreated, underpaid, their, their wages were being withheld. Daily life was a struggle. They were also being falsely accused. Some of them were being dragged into court unjustly. And some paid with their very lives. And Pastor James wants to encourage them in this passage we're in today. It's in James chapter 5. So if you've got a copy of the scriptures or a digital Bible on your device, go there. James wants to, to breathe fresh hope into their souls. 
But any mention of claiming wealth and prosperity is noticeably lacking. See for yourself what he says, beginning in verse 7. Be patient then, brothers, until the Lord's coming. See how the farmer waits for the land to yield its valuable crop? How patient he is for the autumn and the spring rains. You too be patient. And stand firm because the Lord's coming is near. Don't grumble against each other, brothers, or you will be judged. The judge is standing at the door. Brothers, as an example of patience in the face of suffering, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. As you know, we consider blessed those who persevered. You've heard of Job's perseverance and have seen what the Lord finally brought about. The Lord is full of compassion and mercy. Above all, my brothers, do not swear, not by heaven or by earth or by anything else. Let your yes be yes and your no, no, or you will be condemned. Last weekend in the first six verses of this chapter, we saw James addressing those rich farmers who were oppressing these workers. And his message to them was pretty stern, wasn't it? Do you remember? Basically was, hey, the wicked wealthy should weep and wail because the Lord is coming to judge them. But now, to these who are on the receiving end of that mistreatment, that persecution, his message is this, the persecuted poor should patiently persevere because the Lord is coming to deliver them. So the theme of this section is patience and perseverance in the midst of trouble and persecution. And I see James saying several things to these believers who are facing that. First, wait patiently like the farmer. Remember in verse 7, he said, See how the farmer waits for the land to yield its valuable crop and how patient he is for the autumn and spring rains? You too be patient. Of course, that was an agrarian society and there were farmers all over the place. Most of these folks worked for farmers. And they would have seen many times how the farmer would till and prepare his field and then sow his seed, plant his seed in those fields and then wait for the Lord to send the rain so that his crops would grow and they could have a plentiful harvest. So James says to these persecuted Christians, in like manner, he says, wait patiently for the Lord, specifically for his return. When Jesus comes back to deliver his people and vindicate them from their oppressors. And I read that, and maybe you read that, and I think, well, that's, that's interesting. I have a Western mindset, you know. And I think, well, well where, where's the call here to rise up? Where's the rallying cry to fight back and assert their rights and take to the streets in protest? Not there. Deafening in its silence, isn't it? Certainly James saw the evil of what was being done to these poor brothers and sisters and he did condemn those wicked oppressors. But the call here sounds strange, I think, to our Western ears. Just sit and wait. Be patient. Seriously? And if the coming of the Lord was so near, like James says in verse 8, how is it that we're still waiting for the arrival of our Lord some 2,000 years later? We need to grapple with these questions, and they're not easy ones. I believe we should acknowledge that this call here to be patient is consistent with the pattern we find throughout all the Bible of God's people being persecuted by the wicked 
And then crying out to God, God, see our misery, see our plight. And then waiting for God to come or to send a deliverer to vindicate them. And God's deliverance always comes, it always comes, but always on His timetable. And so here again, we come to that common call in Scripture for God's people to cultivate an eternal perspective on things. Does anybody remember the rope with the little red tip on the end from earlier this year that signified you know, the relative duration of our 70 or 80 years on this earth compared to billions of years in eternity? Oh, how it changes everything when we call to mind the fact that this life is not all there is. But that an eternity awaits us. An eternity of years that will dwarf our little lifespan here on this earth. See, God will vindicate His people, perhaps in this life, but surely in the life to come. Where the memory of present discomfort will be overwhelmed by the splendor of the glory that will be ours in His presence forever. You know, 10 billion years from now, the little inconveniences of today will be a distant memory. That ability to rise high above your situation and gain an eternal perspective is essential if we are going to patiently endure the trials that we face in our lives and stay faithful to God. That perspective is what enabled Perpetua and her friends to stand firm in her hour of trial and, and cling to Christ, not deny Jesus. That promise of everlasting life in heaven with Jesus. Unending life beyond the grave, right? And so James' call to these oppressed workers is clear. Don't take matters into your own hands. Wait patiently for the Lord. Like the farmer, envision the valuable harvest that you will enjoy after the Lord sends the rain. And revel in it by faith. The blessing will come, it will come, and it will come in His time. Wait patiently for the coming of the Lord. And then, interestingly, second, a second instruction or exhortation, he says, be patient with each other. Verse 9, don't grumble against each other, brothers, or you will be judged. The judge is standing at the door. And so part of waiting patiently is being patient with each other in the midst of difficulty and hardship. Not projecting our frustrations onto them as if they were to blame for our difficult times. That's so easy to do, isn't it? You're going through it, and you just turn to the ones who are nearby, right? And kind of let them have it. But what good does that do? James here reminds us the same judge who will come and judge the wicked on that day is also going to judge his own people not to condemn us to hell for our sins. We've been redeemed by the blood of Christ. But the judgment of believers is to evaluate and reward us for those times, those difficult times when we did stand firm and when we continued to love one another and treat each other as Christ would have us. Even in the midst of difficult days. But James says, brothers, wait patiently for the Lord to return and be patient with each other. And then he calls to mind some folks from times past, the prophets. He says, persevere patiently like the prophets and like Job. Let me read it again for you, verse 10. 
Brothers, as an example of patience in the face of suffering, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. As you know, we consider blessed those who have persevered. You've heard of Job's perseverance and have seen what the Lord finally brought about. The Lord is full of compassion and mercy. What's he saying? He's saying, look, I know your life is hard right now. I'm not denying that. But think for a moment about the people who have had it a lot harder than you have it. Think about the prophets. Now remember, James was a Messianic Jew writing to Messianic Jews. And when he talked about the prophets, you've got to realize those were the rock stars of that day. No, not band members, not athletes, not TV stars, but the prophets were the ones who were on the posters on the kids' walls. I mean, they were highly regarded, highly revered. James says, think about the prophets. And think about Job. I was reading this week in, in the great faith chapter, Hebrews 11, the hall of faith. It tells us what some of those prophets had to face. Verse 35, some were tortured and refused to be released so that they might gain a better resurrection. Mind-boggling. Some faced jeers and flogging while still others were chained and put in prison. They were stoned, they were sawed in two, they were put to death by the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute, persecuted, and mistreated. The world was not worthy of them. They wandered about in deserts and mountains and in caves and holes in the ground. These were all commended for their faith, yet none of them received what had been promised. Jeremiah, Isaiah, Samuel, Haggai, Elijah, Elisha. Israel's prophets, a unique breed for sure. All of them had very hard lives. They all faced severe opposition and persecution. And James says, we consider them blessed because they stood firm and they kept the faith. Despite all that opposition, they fulfilled their mission that God had called them to. Some even lost their lives. You know, sometimes I fall into the trap of thinking that my life is really hard. Like the other day when I went to Walmart, I had to park, literally, I don't like shopping, okay? I just want to get in and get out. I had to park acres away from the entrance. There were no parking spaces. So I am, you know, traipsing across the parking lot, going in the Walmart. If that wasn't bad enough, after I got my items, I thought, I'll go to the checkout lane because I have less than 10, 10 items. The express checkout, right? I think it was 10. I get in line, and the guy ahead of me has 14 items in the express checkout. And I'm thinking, what's the deal here? Can you not read the sign? It's right there. The gall he had. Why does my life have to be so hard? I just wanted to get in and get out. And you're laughing because you've done that. (laughs) Consider the prophet's. You know, when I compare my situation with theirs, it kind of helps put things into perspective. I guess my life isn't that hard after all. I wasn't sawed in two. I have to sleep in a hole in the ground. I'm not chained and put in prison. I came to realize, what, what am I complaining about, really? Some people's lives are hard, but mine, not really. 
Speaking of hard lives, James mentions Job. Now, you and I may have had some difficult days, but you've never had a day like Job had. Read it again in Job chapter 1, one of these days, just to get perspective, okay? In a matter of a few devastating moments, his whole life was shattered. I mean, it was like one thing after another. These messengers kept coming with bad news, right? Your kids are dead. Your flocks are scattered. The enemy's coming. Wham, wham, wham. Finally, his wife just throws up her hands and says, why don't you just curse God and die, Job? This is a day from hell. And let's be honest, Job struggled mightily with what God had allowed in his life. You would have too. I would have. He processed his sorry state with his friends. That's not a bad thing to do. But he found little comfort in that. For chapters and chapters and chapters in Job, he's just lamenting how God was treating him. In verse seven, chapter 7, verse 20, If I have sinned, what have I done to you, O watcher of men? Why have you made me your target? Have I become a burden to you? Chapter 21, verse 7, Why do the wicked live on and grow old and increase in power? God, am, am I your whipping boy? Are you targeting me? And beyond that, how come those who don't fear you seem to be thriving and have an easy life? Job tried to make sense of it all, didn't he? He tried to get answers from God, but to no avail. His frustration and suffering overwhelmed him at times, and he let God have it. I am so glad the book of Job is in the Bible. That tells me that God can take whatever we dish out. His emotions were raw, his words were unfiltered. So why then does James tell suffering saints to remember Job? Well, certainly to put their misery into perspective as compared with his, to give them some perspective. But also, I think, because of the expression of Job's faith contained in these statements. To his wife, he said, Honey, shall we accept good from God and not adversity? The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And then this gargantuan statement in Job 13, Though he slay me, yet will I hope in him. That is persevering faith. That's the faith of Perpetua, of Felicitas, of those martyrs in Syria that we read about. God, you can let them kill me, or you can do it yourself if you want. But know this, I will never turn away from you no matter what. My hope will always be in you because I know you. Regardless of what you choose to do to me in this life, I know you and I believe your promises for the life to come. I will always cling to you. That is gutsy faith. That is gutsy faith. I wonder, do you know anybody who has that kind of gutsy faith? who no matter what they're going through, cancer, recurrence of cancer, multiple job losses, divorce, multiple divorces, no matter what they're going through, they cling to Christ with gutsy faith. You know anybody like that who inspires you? 
If you do, I hope you'll call him up or send him an email and say, I just want to thank you for being who you are. I want to thank you for believing in Christ and clinging to him no matter what. That inspires me. And I need that at times. The rare quality in our world, wouldn't you agree? Though he slay me, yet will I hope in him. James is saying to these beaten down brothers and sisters, wait patiently for the Lord to come and deliver you and don't take out your frustrations on the people you love, but be patient with them. And strengthen your heart, that's what the word means, fortify your heart by calling to mind those who have gone before you who persevered persevered through their trial and held on to God. Let them inspire you and strengthen your own resolve to keep clinging to Jesus no matter what happens in your life and trust the mercy and compassion of the Lord. Trust his heart. When you can't trace his hand, trust his heart. And then finally, this is kind of interesting, verse 12, he's been talking about being patient, right? Patiently enduring. He seems to be saying in verse 12, I'm also exhorting you to patiently resist making a vow to get revenge, to get even. Above all, my brothers, do not swear, not by heaven or by earth or anything else. Let your yes be yes and your no, no, or you will be condemned. And seems to me in this context, James appears to be telling his readers, listen, don't swear to get even with those people who are making your life hard. Resist that urge. Hold on to your integrity. No matter what happens, say what you mean and mean what you say. Interesting to me, he's basically quoting verbatim his brother, Jesus, from the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. You know, it's when we're under pressure, isn't it? It's when life is hard. It's when we're facing adversity that our true character gets revealed. It's when we get shaken up that what's inside comes out. We can see it. And the real substance of our faith bubbles out and comes to the surface. Do I really believe that God's in control? Or do I secretly think I'm really in control? Can I rest in God to be my avenger, my ultimate avenger? Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. Or am I going to let my anger consume me to the point where I'm going to take matters in my own hands and get even? Do I feel the need to swear up and down to get people to believe me that if I say I'm going to do something, I'm actually going to do it? And if I say I'm not going to do it, I will refrain from that? Or can people have confidence that if I just give them my word, they can take that to the bank? True answers to those questions become more obvious when life gets hard and the heat is on. I want to remind all of us today that the ultimate example of someone being persecuted unjustly and patiently enduring it was Jesus, Jesus of Nazareth. If you need inspiration today to hold on to your integrity when you feel like you're being mistreated, you can look to the prophets, like James said, and you can look to Job, but you need to realize that despite their courageous faith, All of them fell short. Look to Jesus. 
The writer of Hebrews put it this way in Hebrews 12, let us run with perseverance the race that is marked out for us. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood, but he has, and he did. Jesus is our atonement for sin, isn't he? He paid the blood price for all of our sins, and he's our inspiration and our example and our empower through his spirit in us. He can help us endure the mistreatment that we face at the hands of others. And resist that urge to get even, to even the score. Very interestingly, Peter put it this way in his letter, 1 Peter 2. For it is commendable, listen, it is commendable if a man bears up under the pain of unjust suffering because he is conscious of God. How is it to your credit if you receive a beating for doing wrong and endure it? That's just punishment, right? But if you suffer for doing good... And endure it. This is commendable before God. And to this you were called. Because Christ suffered for you. Leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin. No deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled their insults at him, he didn't retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. Think of Jesus. Think of him walking down the Via Dolorosa, carrying that cross, his body beaten and bludgeoned to a pulp. Did he fight back? Did he say, You sorry rascals, I'm going to incinerate you with a word and turn you into a pile of ashes. Did he call for those 12 legions of angels, 72,000 angels to come and whisk him away and take him to his heavenly throne so he wouldn't have to endure this suffering? Did he do that? No. He refrained from that. He persevered and did the will of God, didn't he? That's your Lord. That's your Savior who did that. That's why we love and worship And give our lives to Jesus. And if need be, give our lives for Jesus one day. You know, I've heard many people down through the years ask this question. Why do bad things happen to good people? Pastor Steve, why do bad things happen to good people? I like how one man replied. He said, you know what? That's only happened once. (laughs) Only one man has ever been totally good, pure as the driven snow, completely undeserving of anything bad happening to him. Christ Jesus the Lord. In the final analysis, only Jesus' suffering was truly unjust suffering. Yet he persevered through it, didn't he? With grace and with trust, he entrusted his fate to God the Father. So thank you, James, for 
exhorting us to hold fast to the faith, to cling to Jesus, to be patient, to refuse to turn on each other, to remember those examples from the past who set the pace for us in faithfully persevering and to hold on to our integrity. So I wonder today, those of you in this room, where do you need to follow Jesus' example today to stop taking matters into your own hands and just entrust yourself to God? I wonder which of you is going through some hard times. Does life feel unfair to you right now? Does it feel unfair? Are there people who are treating you badly and for no apparent reason? You're like, you know, I'm, 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 I'm trying to do the right things and I'm still getting hammered. Seems unfair. What's going on, God? Feel like that? I wonder if there's any in the room who are close to losing heart or losing faith. You know, earlier we, um, we did pray for our persecuted brothers and sisters around the country, but we didn't have our typical brothers keeper prayer time, sisters keeper prayer time, because we realized this sermon lends itself to that, and we're going we're gonna to do that right now. So would you stand with me while I pray for us? Lord, I, I feel that right now there are people in this room who are struggling, who have been struggling, who feel like things are being unfair. Lord, perhaps you've given them the gift this morning of, of a larger perspective on their situation, and I thank you for that. Lord, I want them to feel, I believe you want them to feel the touch of the people of God coming around them and praying for them. That you would open their eyes even further to, to who you are and what's in your heart and that you would infuse their hearts with fresh hope and fresh faith to trust you in the midst of difficult times. And so would you, through your spirit, enable that these next few moments as we as a body of believers lift each other up in prayer and ask in Christ's name, amen. Visit us each week as we continue to journey through God's word and seek to know him better through the gospel. Our prayer is that the gospel has taken a deeper hold of you as we have studied the word together at New Life Church, where Jesus is front and center all the time.